0: morning folks we uh, can you can you hear me can you there we go so probably should start our time together while we pray father thank you for this uh, what appears to be a bright day we ask you Lord to help us as we uh, look at the confession this morning and strive to grow in knowledge and, and depth of insight. We pray that you'll help us in all, in all that. In Christ's name, amen. Okie doke, here we are. Well, um, we're back in chapter 8, and we didn't get all the way through uh, the third uh, paragraph so, uh, last time, so I'll, I'll begin halfway through there, and hopefully we'll get through uh, the fourth today. Um, One of the things I think that we can miss when we think about the confession or the creeds uh, is the fact that the uh, confessions and creeds are intended to not only teach us uh, the truth but uh, help us discern error, help us to see where things go wrong. So that when we encounter an idea for the first time, we don't find ourselves completely at a loss. We've got kind of a cheat sheet of reality. <laughs> remember, maybe, I, I don't know if they do this anymore, but I remember in high school we had you know all the answers in the back of the book. You know, you'd go, look, look to the back of the book, oh, of course. <laughs> it, well, you know, the, the creeds and confessions are like that. They're kind of like the answers in the back of the book. So like when you run across some novel uh, sort of Proposal about, you know, redistributing wealth or something or about the nature of the human race, uh, what it means to be a human being, or even male or female, as we can see from recent insanity in our nation's capital. We have a cheat sheet. We can just say, hey, you know, this is not like stuff that we have to just uh, address as though uh, we have no insight into reality. We've got it. Until last week I talked a little bit about the things that are going on in higher education and kind of kind of, trickling down into secular education more broadly concerning human nature and how uh, those ideas are actually uh, refuted in, an, in a way that people may not have ever considered or few people consider even in the church, and that is Christ's human nature. So if Christ had a, had a nature, a human nature, It's fixed. Get what that means? It means that these ideas that human beings can be kind of re-engineered and sort of constructed through language uh, or through coercive measures taken by the state uh, are wrong. Full stop. (laughs) That's kind of it. There's there's nothing more to really think about. But what's remarkable is how – Sort of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, subject to suggestion, many Christians can be uh, because they can't connect the dots. They can't. So, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we have to be uh, good at is, is, a, is sort of thinking about how things that we think are out of touch with reality actually define reality for us and how, plus, see air all around us and so it seems like there's no um kind of uh well loss or 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 shortage of heresies or heretical thinking and they just kind of rework themselves into sort of new packages but when you peel away the packaging you can see that oh this is just that particular heresy kind of coming back Uh, you know, kind of like Hollywood can't figure out how to make a new movie, just make, remake old ones. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I remember I, I just last night I was I was looking at uh, apparently they remade West Side Story and I thought, why? It was great, you know? <laughs> so I, I looked it up and I thought, I saw the, the thing. no, no, the, the, the original was just much better. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to heresies, um, we, what we got is kind of this, uh, Rerun, you know these reruns of different ideas that are just plain wrong. So anyway, with that, with that, uh, with with that in mind, let's take a look at um, this uh, third paragraph, beginning at the middle. So um, where it reads, I think five lines down, he might be thoroughly finished, uh, furnished, I should say, to execute the office of a mediator. And surety so we were talking about the fact that in Christ's person we have the you uh, know we have God uh, and we have uh, human nature and they are uh, they're present in the same person but unmixed undefiled etc and because of that Christ is in his very person uh, the mediation between God and man or the mediator between God and man It's not just that he's in the right spot, physically located, you know, it's his nature. uh, And his person is the place where uh, God and human nature meet. So that's uh, important. Now surety. Now when we we hear the word surety, what uh, comes to mind? It's kind of an old-fashioned word. Any any thoughts on what it means? Bonds. What's that? Bonds.
1: Bonds? Yeah, I feel
0: like, isn't there like an old surety in bonds? Like yeah, yeah, well, bonds would be kind of like to restrain, right, or to hold together. And insurance is a kind of guarantee of uh, kind of future payment. So if you, if you think about, you know, uh, whenever you've got uh, a, uh, a situation where there's an agreement that's been reached and you want people to kind of take it seriously, you need to have some money set aside or some property or something set aside to assure serve as a surety to the parties involved and so Christ is uh, the surety that uh, what we're promised t- uh, t- uh, will actually come about so that 's impo- kind of a kind of thing to keep in mind sometimes you'll you'll you 'll uh, you'll, uh hear Christ referred to as kind of, a, well, you hear the, the Spirit uh, referred to as a deposit. Is this It's about the idea that there's a, there's a sense in which there's something more coming, but we've got something already. So like if you're, you know, again, kind of getting back to the surety thing, if you're interacting with somebody and there's some kind of transaction and you're afraid that the other party is just going to walk away, he said, can you put down some money on that? <laughs> so in a sense, you know, this is a way to think about how the Spirit uh, is a promise to us of something more to come. It's not just this is all we, we have to look forward to. This is what we have right now. And so the idea is well, if we have this now, how much better uh, will it be when we get the full uh, the full kind of promised gift All right. Um, Now, this uh, last uh, sentence here, which obviously took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Now, uh, this idea of being called to to something, not sort of arrogating uh, an authority to oneself, the word arrogation, is the is uh, refers to you know arrogance sort of being uh, presumptuous taking up you know to oneself something that um, one doesn't have a right to uh, when you're called to some uh, office in you know the church the thing that uh, you know we need to be you know uh, thinking about is what's going on why why do you want this office um, sometimes people want offices for bad reasons. Have you ever come across that? Like one of the things you you, you can see in Scripture is almost nobody wants the job. Have you ever noticed that? Almost nobody wants the job. Uh, Moses didn't want the job. Uh, Isaiah didn't want the job. (laughs) Lots of people don't want the job. And um, sometimes Christ would turn people away who volunteered, right? Now, what do you think is going on with that? Not so much thinking about Christ and his calling now. I'm just kind of thinking about human beings and, you know, roles in church. Yeah. Maybe
1: uh, people that want positions of power may have their own agenda.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, like there's a joke, you know, I don't want to be bishop. You know, it's sort of like a, a thing that's... Like all the best bishops didn't want the job. <laughs> they, they had other things they would rather be doing. The guy who is like, you know, ladder climber, you know, I want to be bishop someday. Well, maybe that's an indication that you don't really belong there. <laughs> now, you know, we do have places where we're told that, you know, wanting to be an overseer is a, is a good thing, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not as though um, this is like a, a foolproof kind of test. Do you want the job? Yes. No. You don't get the job. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to imply that, but I do think that there is, there are things about uh, you know authority in particular which, um, kind of, uh, can be um, desired for bad reasons. So we have to be kind of on the on the lookout for that, and on the lookout in ourselves. You know, why do I want this? To, why do I like getting up in front of people and talking? Is it an ego trip, you know, is, is, that's what, is that uh, what is going on? You know, so I think any anyone who's in a position of authority should be really working at that on an ongoing basis. You know, what, what am I doing this for? Is it for the right reasons? Any, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I just have. A
0: thought on. The the <laughs> <laughs> you go first. Well, actually, he's the man, so he should go first. Okay, well whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, just
2: to know what the, I didn't see your uh, Harmless. Right? The uh, last thing I was thinking that Jesus was was harmless. But uh, what does that even mean? What they were are they implying
0: word? Well, he can certainly do some damage. I don't think it implies that he is impotent. Uh, or that uh, his uh, judgments are always uh, painless to, to receive. You know, think about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't remember, remember that line. You know, he's, he's uh, what's it, I can't remember quite how it goes. He's not, uh, not, safe. Hmm? not safe, that's it, but not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. So we have a hard time reconciling those two things. We think if somebody is... Uh, uh, not safe, then that they're bad. Um, what it may mean is that they're uh, so potent that they could kill you without even knowing, you know, sort of like you, you, you're realizing that you're taking your life into your hands. So, like, when you, when you think about, like, Moses wants to see the, wants to see the Lord, right? You know, there, there's that episode where he asks, you know, may I see your glory? And what's, what's the Lord say? It's going to kill you. <laughs> you will die if you see my glory. Um, but I'll let you see me fading away, passing by. So in other words, there's a, there's a kind of potency that's good but um, dangerous, kind of like radioactivity. We can light a city with it. We can blow it up. It's almost. In fact, you can almost say that... Um, the more powerful something is and, and it's serviced for the good, the more dangerous it is when it goes bad, too. Like we think, let's think about um, human beings uh, when it comes to the um, wickedness that they can uh, perform. Um, when, you, when you think about it, when, a say, an emperor goes bad, like a Caliglia or, or a Nero. There's a whole lot of damage that that guy can do. Um, you know, his, uh, his chauffeur, not so much. <laughs> you, get, you get my drift? So the chauffeur can do bad things, you know. I'm not saying that the chauffeur can't, but the, sort of this, the range of the damage, the impact of it is just simply, you know, not as great. In the same same way, uh, you know, the potential for good that an emperor can perform is pretty great. Uh, Chauffeur, not so much. (laughs) It's not that being a chauffeur is a bad thing. It's just that there's not a whole lot of power in chauffeuring, (laughs) you know. So when we we think about God, you know, uh, in terms of potency, I think that's I think that's what we're getting at here. But h- harmless in the sense that there's no harm in, uh, intended. I think yes, maybe that's a good way to think about it. Uh, so the the judgments that are pronounced by the Lord are deserved, right? And consequently, um, even though the judgment that's con- condemnation uh, the, the con- condemning judgment is uh, painful to receive it's it's healing in a larger sense and and healthy harmless in, in that way I guess you could say um, so and that brings me right to this this next line here or, or that part of that line it's that you know, put all power and judgment into his hand. So Christ is the judge. I introduced an idea last week that might have been new to you, and that's a reflexive judgment. The idea that the pronounce, what you pronounce upon God is what you get. The idea that um, with the measure you use will be measured to you. It runs throughout Scripture. You see it all over the place. So what, what people do when they condemn God is condemn themselves. And uh, they get it as hot and hard as they give it. <laughs> and uh, and, and what, what does that imply is that um, the, the party who's receiving this judgment uh, is, the, is, the, is the one who really deserves getting what he's got in the process. So anyway, and then when we praise God, we, we, we say that God is good, Uh, and we genuinely worship Him, there's another sense in which the reflexive judgment is applied. So like when it comes to Christ, when we think about our judgments when it comes to Christ, when we say He is good, the Savior of the world, unjustly condemned, there's a strange way in which we are saying that it's through Him that we've been justified. The judgment that we made directed at Him is now directed at us just justified that doesn't uh, well and then and then if if uh, we reject him as he was rejected by the you know leaders at that time both civil and religious leaders at that time then we will be rejected if we condemn him we will be condemned so you know, there's a great great line that C.S. Lewis had uh, talking about the final judgment. Maybe you've heard this. Um, he said, uh, In the end, it'll, it'll be either thy will be done, us saying to God, thy will be done, or God saying to us, thy will be done. You want that? Are you sure? So, anyway. Maybe wouldn't that be like a great movie, like like a closing scene at the judgment seat, and every every word of condemnation is in the voice of the person condemned. In other words, the reflexive judgment's all coming right back at the person. Anyway, that'll keep you up at night. <laughs> um, and gave him commandment to execute. So it's 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 so Christ has been given. Uh, this uh, office and it entails power uh, uh, to exercise judgment and uh, he's been commanded to do this. It's not like um, something he just kind of says, well, I just feel like doing this or something like that. He's been told to do this. This (laughs) is his pass. Yeah. I just got a little distracted there, uh,
2: but and gave him commandment to execute the same that that sounds like um, actually that sounds like legal jargon in a way oh, yes. and, and so I don't really know can you like paraphrase it in a common linguistic phrase that can be easy to understand Like, where God is giving him commandment, does that mean he's giving him the same authority and then to execute the same the same what? Just the same, the same
0: uh, meaning, judgment, and power. So he's been given the task of judging, and he's been commanded to do so. Yeah, one of the things that's uh, kind of uh, worthwhile doing when you're maybe um, studying scripture or something like this is uh, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, I guess. Uh, take a pen and analyze the sentence and see what modifies what in the sentence. And then say, okay, well, okay, this is same, same, what's that referring to, same what? So you go back, in other words, you have to go back and identify what's being referred to. And if you look at the structure of the sentences, you know, look at the syntax, how the sentence is put together, then you can kind of dissect it and identify, okay, this is modifying that. This is particularly helpful in the letters that Paul wrote because Paul has a remarkable ability to get off point. You know, oh, and this reminds me of this, and the next thing you know you're down in some curlicue or you know, in some cul-de-sac, you know, and you're like, how did we get here? <laughs> and you can trace it back. Like the longest sentence in the Bible, I believe, I believe it's, I think it's in Ephesians. Ephesians or First oh, steps so it's, put, like, oh, it's Ephesians. Well, it never stops. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it's unbelievable. <laughs> One sentence that goes on for like ten lines or something, like that, and you just string it all together. And you take that sentence, and you can. It is not it's not so difficult that, that people can't figure it out. But you just have to stop and think. You know, what's modifying why. Okay. Uh, Ready to move on? Yep. Just that last whole
1: sentence, which starts with "which office," um, is is of the economic nature of the Trinity, is so on display there in a way that is not commonly considered. In the sense that it's God the Father is commanding him; he is uh, called and he's submitting to those mm-hmm. commands willingly and happily
3: mm-hmm. in doing yep. in doing those things. That yeah. just, God is big on authority and submission, yep. not only for us, but even within the Godhead.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in terms of how it has to work, particularly in time and space, things have to be ordered in some kind of hierarchy with really, aesthetic priorities and sort of um, chains of command,
3: yeah. uh, otherwise it's just chaos. I have a yeah. comment about uh,
1: so that. the term office occurs several times here on what we're reading and then in what we're going to read, which office, and so this might help with the whole idea of uh, well, I'm not going to paraphrase here but to, to say that that it is legal <laughs> it absolutely is legal and there's legality in the trinity, the economy of the trinity and so there's a there's a submission I guess, like our better words in this trinitarian not necessarily ontological but economical as to say, who's doing what yep,
0: yeah, there's work that's good done and the word economy means house law so uh, okay.
1: office this is what this is all about. This, this chapter 8 is about the office of a mediator. Right. Office he took, and then, and then part four says, this office he willingly did undertake. So.
0: Yeah, in, in, in uh, the history of, of you know, Christian theology, there have been uh, these two uh, complementary, but sometimes people get confused ways of thinking about things one is the ontology which is brings in uh, often the language of participation so we participate in the trinity uh, and the, what, we're be, what we're receiving from God is his life and it's not merely uh, a legal sort of status it's actually the life of God that we receive so we're, we're somehow participating in the very being of God then there's the legal language the juridical language that deals with judgment and moral standing and uh, those sorts of things. And they're, they complement each other. They're not in, they're not in competition. But um, sometimes people can lose sight of one because they're so focused on the other. So sometimes within um, circles where you uh, see um, a very strong emphasis on the juridical, you lose touch with the ontological. Give me an example. Eternal life. Is it something that you can somehow abstract from the being of God or not? Negative. Negative. Because it's an ontological thing. In other words, life isn't like a cookie. It's not like I, I give you the cookie of eternal life. You take one bite and you never die.
1: I can just a cookie right now.
0: <laughs> Me too, <I> like <laughs> but the idea is that some people have is that, okay, eternal life is like a cookie. I, get, I, I take a bite of the cookie and I'm now I'm made of plastic. I cannot die. Is that really what's going on? Or are we in some sense connected to eternal life and the eternal life is only found in the being of God? I've got to participate in the life of God if I'm going to enjoy eternal life. So that's, the on, that's ontological language. Now, there is juridical language that applies. So can you sin and be dwelling in God? No. In other words, there's no sin in God. Yep. Isn't, isn't there a sense of where
1: eternal life is union with God? Because yep. everyone is eternal, right? Yep. But in that we're all our souls never die, but our union with Christ... Is make gives us
0: eternal life because God is eternal. Yeah, that's what I was getting at with participation. So, union language, participation language, they're getting at that ontological reality. Uh, juridical language uh, is dealing with the moral aspect of things, which is also very important because God is holy, perfect, right? Sinless. So, if we commit sin, uh, that is incompatible with eternal life. So we're under condemnation. Now you say, "Well, how can we be saved?" Well, that's exactly the problem that's solved by Christ. <laughs> we're in Christ; in other words, participate in Christ. He's died for our sins, and we're being sanctified and then glorified. You know, at some point in the future. And it's because of that work of Christ that we have hope. Otherwise, there'd be no hope. So. Uh, Christ participates in our natures human nature which makes it possible for us to participate in the nature of God back to the authority thing So yep. when Jesus said
1: all authority has been given to me yep. that's a radical statement Yeah. Um,
0: even Nero can't say that Putin yeah.
3: can't say that, Wiley can't say that although I've
0: heard you I've been accused <laughs> but, and so that is an
1: interesting character of the unity that we have with Christ because, ontologically I suppose, but economically he gives us commandment uh, which is is personified and found out in Acts Mm in the book of Acts and his ascension I think it's the same period of time when Jesus, in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 I think that's the same time period I guess, I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but the ascension right? Mm -hmm. Before the ascension, he gives us authority. Mm -hmm. And and that's an interesting concept because I think it is because of our union with Christ, but also this idea of of hierarchy, I guess, hierarchical commandments given. Mm -hmm. And we're to obey. Mm -hmm. We're to obey. We are to obey. Obedience is good and a blessing.
0: Yep. Yep. And, uh, I think too that <laughs> when we uh, understand obedience through the lens of this ontological reality, then what we what we see in obedience is that we're participating in the life of God. So you can't participate in the life of God if you resist God's will. Right. Now, the, the point uh, a minute ago concerning you know the the uh, undying soul in a certain sense what are, we, what are we getting at well right now sinners participate in the life of God in this world right in him we live and move and have our being whether we recognize that, that it's uh, life that is from God or not so there is some ca- ca- sort of aspect to the uh, life that's being presented to us eternal life which is in uh, the glory of God Glory of God as it's uh, received as as a mercy, as opposed to the glory of God in judgment. So we we're you know now enjoying God's favor eternally and the authority that comes with that. Uh, You remember there are there are all these marvelous throwaway lines in the New Testament that we just kind of skip over, like uh, and and again this is Paul. Don't you know that we will judge angels? I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's right. yeah, it's no by the way kind of oh and here i was like wow we're going to judge angels why because we're so much better than angels no it's the mercy of god it's the it's the grace of god we're and we're in some sense being raised to that level to exercise judgment um so that's you know what we're getting at here with this you know what is it, what is uh what is entailed in in that uh life that we enjoy uh in christ uh and God's favor that we see uh, for Christ that we're in.
2: Can you integrate the verse, there is therefore now no
3: condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit, alive in Christ Jesus, sets us free from the law of sin that would bring death. Yeah, so when we're in Christ, Christ is... uh,
0: Justified, in other words, he's uh, uh, been pronounced through the resurrection uh, just. He was just before, but this is God's vindication of his of his uh, his justness. And when we're in Christ, we're participating, living in Christ. So it's not as though we don't. It's not as though we deserve that um, pronouncement. It's uh, because we're in Christ that we receive it. So, um, and then, you know, as we live t- to the Spirit, for the, uh, by the Spirit, uh, we put to death, right, the deeds of the flesh. So, our sanctification over the course of this life is progressive, and there's, there's a reality that's being uh, realized in our lives. Um, so it's as good as done, but being done. Does that make Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other thoughts? All right. Um, let's take a look here at uh, paragraph 4. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it. I want to stop here. I think this is an, one of the more significant uh, things that Reformed theology stresses that is sometimes lost in other, particularly Protestant, schools of thought, and that is um, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So um, in, in many places, uh, you, what you get when, when it comes to the preaching of the gospel is uh, the promise of returning to zero. Here's what I mean. Oh, you've sinned, fallen short of the glory of God? Yeah, that's a big problem. You're under the condemnation of death. Uh, but the good news is, is that you can go back to total zero and start again. And then from that point on, you need to live a holy life or you're back to the bad side. <laughs> you get what I'm getting at? So what what you're, what you're being uh, told, in effect, is that Christ's um, meritorious life was lived merely for himself so that he would be unjustly condemned. In other words, he had not, not committed any sin. And, uh, but that, that meritorious life is his property but not yours. You see how that is kind of implied in that? So he died for you, but he didn't live for you. That's again not never explicitly stated, but that's the implied message. So I remember uh, when I was originally converted in a revival meeting. I was in a I was in a uh, foster home at the time. So I came I came back to the foster home and there were other foster kids in the foster home. And I said I was just saved, just saved. It's great. Now I just need to live a sinless life, and I'm good. Uh, Not so well. But you see, that's the thing. So, you, you know, in some settings, you know, the reason why they have an altar call every Sunday is because you got to get saved every Sunday. That's, you know, because you're only going back to zero. In other words, the, the life of Christ is not counted to you in that way of thinking about the, you know, the workings of, of salvation. But here we see that this life uh, that the Lord leads and discharges under the law and perfectly fulfills, provides the occasion for his righteousness to be imputed to us, not just our sin imputed to him. That's a huge, huge difference. And a lot of times when you talk to uh, folks who are coming from an Armenian outlook, they kind of know when they think about this that that can't be the way it works. In other words, their own theology, I can't be the way it works because if that's really the way it works, I'm in a heap of trouble still. Um, it's got to be uh, what is, I think, explicitly taught within Reformed circles that uh, when we're in Christ, uh, the, the uh, righteousness of the law is imputed to us. But this is providing the Is that what you just said out of this text? Well, it's a, the it's a condition. So that when, he says stuff, when he says stuff like he did perfectly fulfill it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right. In Charles right. Grievous, all that
3: was an active <laughs> obedience that we received. Right. Okay. Yep. So can the word perfectly
0: there be equated with completely? Yeah. yeah well, the, the word... Um, Perfect, generally uh, in the New Testament, as in, uh, a word that is uh, translated from the word "telos," which means the goal, the final state of things, purpose for
3: things. Because where he says, "Be perfect, as I am perfect," of course,
2: we can't be perfect, yeah. but we can be complete, holy and entire, lacking nothing.
0: Yeah, I think. So that, yeah, I think that's right. Um, in another sense, um, well, now we're getting into the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, <laughs> and that's a whole subject for another time. Um, one way to think about the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, well, okay, let me, let me get into it. Now, I, I, I could say I've raised some eyebrows here. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Um, the purpose, you know, one of the ways that it's been uh, understood within uh, certain circles is that Christ is uh, helping to see just how thoroughly, uh, I guess, uh, capacious or, or uh, inclusive uh, the law is, which, which is intended to help us recognize that there's no f- feasible way that we can actually pull it off. So, um, now that doesn't mean that he's saying... Uh, things that aren't true. He's, he's just sort of bringing to the surface things that are maybe been, been missed by people. So in terms of perfection, um, you know, you can say, well, be perfect as I am perfect, it could also be understood, and this is certain circles, um, and I have a uh, I, I, I sense that this is definitely part of the story, that be perfect as I am perfect uh, would also imply you're hopeless. <laughs> you see, what I'm getting at. There's no way you can actually be as perfect as I am. Um, but does that mean that we're not called to pursue uh, holiness? No. It means that we're to strive uh, with every bit of strength that we have to pursue that. Um, I've, re- I've done a lot of reflecting on this particular matter because of my background in the Wesleyan world, because they'll actually say, you know, be perfect and you know as I am perfect, and they mean it. <laughs> So, like, the Holiness Movement in the late 19th century, they were kind of known for that. And there were all sorts of interesting little things that came out of that. I'm being facetious. (laughs) Um, Familiar with the, the Shortcut to Holiness by Phoebe Palmer? Second Definite Work of Grace, are you familiar with that language? So, Second Definite Work of Grace. So, uh, Phoebe Palmer was a, a Methodist, uh, well, wealthy Methodist woman with too much time in her hands. Apparently, and she had her Tuesday morning uh, prayer meeting for the promotion of holiness. And uh, and what you have with with Wesley, Wesley is like he believed, you know, in holiness of heart and life. But he also said things like, ah, "I've never met anybody that's actually achieved this." <laughs> So uh, this, of course, is an outlook that just is very difficult for many Americans to accept, right? So the, so the idea was there must be a way. So a bunch of people started, you know, you know began to comb Scripture, and uh, she came across that passage that says the altar sanctifies the gift. Okay, so put your all on the altar. Now this language might start coming back to you. Put your all on the altar and then, you know, claim it. Well, this is also the beginning of name it and claim it <laughs> stuff so what came out of the holiness movement and the camp meeting movement led to all kinds of interesting things the higher life movement Pentecostalism, all kinds of stuff uh, because uh, this, this, uh, this idea that we could somehow, so for example in the, in the Nazarene church I was converted in we never prayed the Lord's prayer Do you know why? Because if you're perfect, you don't have to confess. That's right. <laughs> There's some it's weird stuff that <laughs> happens in, in, these, in these settings. Uh, anyway. Um, I mean, you. have people condemn
1: me for the concept of confessing my sin. Like, yeah. That's, that's looking badly at the righteousness that you have. You know? Yeah, well, so what is It's not happening. my righteousness, though. See, that's, that's, this is the problem. Jesus said, do not think that I came to this is in the i yeah. mm-hmm. I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Yeah, fulfill and, so, it. Yeah. and so this thing that you were talking about is so incredibly important to me in this text is that this idea of a double righteousness or a passive and active obedience of Christ where, where you have to have perfect righteousness before God or your toast. And he fulfilled that. And in our unity, back to that, right again, we have it. It doesn't give us license to sin, but we have the righteousness of Christ, not just the abolition of our guilt, mm-hmm. but our satisfaction of, of, of a true righteous life. Yeah, Christ
0: Jesus. yeah and in certain circles, uh, because they've rejected that, uh, the righteousness that you are rewarded for
3: is, is your own. Your obedience to the law is what you're, you are rewarded
0: for. So but let me just kind of go back to this one thing because I was a, I was a you know in that world for a period of time. I was a pastor in the Wesleyan world for about twenty years, and there are certain pathologies that are very common. Uh, one is the tendency to lead a schizophrenic life, because if you can't own your your sin as a believer, then you just kind of like pretend it doesn't exist. I've run into a number of those folks. Now, maybe there is a Reformed version of this, <laughs> but that's, that's a, a version of it you find in the, in the Wesleyan world. The other thing is you define sin down to manageable proportions.
1: What did the pastor do in 20 years of preaching? Changes his mind. <laughs> in, in, those, in those 20 years, how did you teach, I
0: guess? Well, it was a period. It was, there was a, a, pro, a sort of process that, that occurred uh, over those twenty years, where I became uh, more and more convinced that I couldn't continue in that world. You know, initially, like any, like any, there are a lot of good people in that world. A lot of people love the Lord. But did you find yourself teaching those things? Like no, no, I would just not. I I'd talk about those okay. things. I, I would move on. I would say these are the things I can preach about with conviction. These are the things I can't talk about. Uh, but there came a point in time where I said, "This just can't continue." And uh, so, you, when you're when you're ordained, you make a promise. If you change your mind, you will let everybody know. So I did. <laughs> so the church I served, you know, they loved us. Uh, we had grown a lot. There were a lot of good things going on. We just come through a big building program. Uh, went to two services. There were all kinds of like uh, things on the surface that looked great. But I was like, "I ca- I can't I can't keep this up." There are things I want to preach, or know I should preach. I I would be defrocked if I preached, uh, <laughs> and there are things that they want me to preach I don't believe. So you just have to get to a place where you say, "Okay, I'm done. I got to go. Bye." You know, it was, it was it was hard. You know, but at the same time, it, I'm glad it, uh, that uh, I did it, and Marla came along. <laughs> and it was very it was very costly uh, in certain respects because uh, we knew everybody in that world. As a denomination of a million people. We knew people all the way to the top. And uh, now it's like, whatever happened to the Wileys? Oh, they went reformed. Ah, so sad, so sad. (laughs) 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 Oh, I bet you her grandfather's rolling over in his grave. That kind of stuff. Yep. How
2: does sanctification work itself out in that belief system? yeah well
0: it's it's a sense in which um, you are uh, living by faith in a state of uh, holiness and you are sort of like always on the verge of losing it at any given time so there's a tremendous anxiety there's not a rest uh, but it's an accomplished sanctification in the sense that you are affirming that the work of, that the work of the spirit has occurred in your life so that you love Uh, God and man fully with the whole heart so what do you do with uh, stuff that doesn't seem to correspond to that you explain it away in certain ways like oh that's just human nature well yeah that's the point (laughs) 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 we're sinful (laughs) you know but you do that or you say it's a psychological thing or it's um, some result of trauma from your childhood or you know those kinds of things so you you create uh, a set of excuses and then you define things down. So within the Wesleyan world, uh, what they you know there have been things that they've done to sort of define it down. So like, sin is not a, objectively wrong. It's only wrong if you would, if you did it willfully and intentionally, which is dangerous, as you can see where that could lead. Um, so you know it, it, it's a disobedience to a known law of God well, what's the, what's the, what interest do you have in learning the law of God then? I just want to be ignorant. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, ignorance is bliss. Don't tell me anything else uh, about what's right and wrong because that'll just... If you ever find yourself in a, like, at work, I, this was true for me. Maybe, maybe you're just a better person than me. But I remember when I worked for State Street Bank of Boston, I was working my way through college, and then my, basically my, ma- my mindset was don't tell me anything. I know my job. I know how to do it really fast. I just want to get out of here. <laughs> so we have something new for you to learn. Oh, really? I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> but I think that, that what that creates is this weird set of, of, of strange incentives in the, in the Christian life where you're almost rewarded for not growing in knowledge because you want to define sin down to manageable levels. Uh, I saw some other.
3: Yeah. Whoa. I just wanted to make sure that we get the quote right. Like, It never says, be perfect as I am perfect. It says, be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah. So um, just wanted to make sure that does...
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to get the scripture right. Um,
3: mostly because, like, this chapter is about being a mediator, or Jesus being yeah. a mediator, not mm-hmm. being, like, the end. Mm-hmm. Or, like, yep. yeah. I'm not sure how to say that right, but it's, yeah. So I think I want more clarification on Jesus not being the end, yeah. but being the mediator. So not yeah. sure if we covered that yet, but would like that clarified. Yeah.
0: Um, also, previously we were talking about the word harmless, yeah. And
2: I chased it down to a, a verse in Hebrews seven twenty-six,
3: and it's innocent in ESV or. Um, and I can't find a translation
1: that says um, uh, harmless.
0: Yeah. So like, it also might be in Colossians. Let's see. Chapter two. Let me see if I can find, because I've got the footnotes here that Dave's uh, laid out to go with the passages. So looking at, remind me of where, okay, yep, I see it there in, in three. Holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth. so Hebrews 7.26 is what they cite and how does it read in the in ESV because what I'm looking at I, I'm assuming is. The it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens ok so innocence. is uh, how they uh, translate it with the ESV as opposed to I could look it up Yeah, that's what I was kind of assuming is that that's where... So let me look up the Greek here. (laughs) I'm just curious to see what the word is that is uh, translated in these two different ways. Okay. Hebrews 7... Verse 26. Hoseas. Oh, it's, it's related to holiness. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy, unstained, separate yeah. sinners, right. exalted. You know, sometimes
1: those guys, th- the guys, the writers of this document, they throw stuff out there because they're readers of the scripture. So they'll like, they'll put the text there, and then their it's not their kind of necessarily explain it. They're just going to say, "Here you go, this is your Jesus," and, and so a lot of that we're supposed to take it, you know, chew it up and find out what that really means. It's
0: yeah, and, and that's true. but At the same time. Uh, the confession isn't at the level of scripture so scripture can correct this so perhaps uh... we should think about the word harmless and think about this I'd I'd have to do a little work here to to sort of trace this all out
1: the American standard is
0: innocent innocent as well yeah I think that the idea is is what I'm getting at here with innocence uh, in the sense that genuinely if we're looking at that particular verse, and that is the verse that's used as, a, as the proof t- text for this, Hebrews 7.26, um, then uh, the, 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 the word harmless is being drawn into the confession from the authorized version, but perhaps that wasn't the best word to, uh, in English t- for, that, uh, for that word in Greek. So I need to think about that. Okay. Other thoughts? Yeah.
3: Yeah. If we look at how the word harm was used in in that time, in that day,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. um, it sheds a little light on it. The Puritans also had a saying that I'll loosely paraphrase it, that God allows to his children nothing harmful nor withholds anything needful. Mm And that changes a little bit the way I think about the word harm. We think of harm now mostly as something that causes us some sort of really pretty superficial pain. Yeah, right, right. Uh, now, when we think about a hard, we go a little deeper than superficial, but we think of it as, as discomfort yeah. when sometimes discomfort is, is good for us.
0: Yeah, this is where, you know, having, uh, we were just talking about this yesterday, the Oxford Dictionary, you know, the big one, you know, the... One that hasn't been shortened, uh, where you've got like an entire dictionary for every letter, <laughs> where we could take a look at the word harm and see how it was in, employed in the 17th century and 16th century, see how, how and get a sense of how they thought about it. Yeah.
3: And from a standpoint of, of eternity, uh, price is certainly not harmful. He, he might cause discomfort to us. Right. And, uh, and the, other, the other way they would look at it in those days is reflected in the book. Uh, written by uh, uh, by Baxter uh, uh, on uh, the, the crook and the lot and that how God does allow things that are very painful into mm-hmm. our lives, right. but they're really good. Yeah, yeah. They are for our good. Right, right. These are all good thoughts. Yeah,
2: David. Um, I'll try to distill it down. It's a complicated thought, but uh, it takes from the first thing we read in Article 4 are the paragraph four and connected with the end of paragraph five from whom the Father has given unto him uh, and that's referring to whoever the Father has given to me none can take away and we're going back to this idea of the Westlands and back to zero so it seems to me we have a well I don't even know if my word picture is good but I'm just viewing our spirit is legally bound in Christ now because he called us and of course only God and we know but Mm -hmm. our fruits bear that out and our physical is completely made it's trying to come along in other words, it's been made it's been sanctified by the work but in reality we're having to confess and battle with our spirit and where that converges is the mind Mm -hmm. and so I'm thinking uh the idea of how we should live our life is we are just we're saved, stop worrying about going to hell because you're an imperfect person the battle we're facing is is um, God wanting us to be more like Christ and so um, instead of thinking going back to zero I've just got to be saved I was thinking the way I look at my life is if I don't get things right, my life is going to turn out really bad for me and for other people. And so I'm letting the Holy Spirit... Let <coughs> get to the bottom. The idea is I trust that if God has called me, the Holy Spirit will never let me depart into complete depravity. He has a hold on me of something that is beyond my ability to really do anything he he actually embraces my heart he gives me the desires that are righteous he gives me the longing to come back and even distance himself from me so that i feel and i look at my life as being completely horrible without him and um, yeah i didn't know i mean that's kind of how i relate to my kid that is that right
0: yeah, well, you know, the, the confession and, the, and the, uh, the catechisms lay that, that very thing out. What, pretty much in the language you described it, there are periods of time in our lives where, you know, there could be real waywardness where we, uh, you know, feel the, the uh, consequences for our sinful behavior. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we are elect... Uh, even during that period of time, but it's something that we're going through and we're learning th- from, and there'll be at, 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 in the best cases a, a point in time later in a person's life where uh, that lesson is learned and there's this renewal of fellowship with the, with God through the Spirit. But the the legal status has not been. And this is where the language of the law, you know, the legal. Know, language when it comes to salvation is, is very helpful so that uh even though at the at those particular f- you know s- periods in our lives we're not uh enjoying uh the fellowship with god that we uh should uh nevertheless uh the the this particular episode is not um going to cancel out or uh or uh, abrogate, or uh, nullify God's judgment. A
2: quick follow-up was I noticed that even some of the writers of the Puritans referring to even David was like, well, I don't know if they really said it directly, but it was like, wow, David, were, you know, David was really bad. And it's yeah. like, uh, I guess God allowed that. You know, it's like, wow, geez, I just didn't really realize that God would allow such a thing. But I'm just thinking. Has this, what we're just discussing here, it seems to me like a struggle through the entire church? Uh, but from one end of the spectrum, it's, they just went all out to this uh, Wesleyanism. And even some of the Puritans and Reformers had a struggle with this. Has this always been the case? Or
0: has there been. Well, yeah, the, the, I think the big uh, matter to, to reconcile is our sinfulness and our ongoing sinfulness. And the finished work of christ how do we bring those two things together in a way that does justice to what god has done and does justice to our sinfulness that's that's the the challenge and and different theological approaches have endeavored to work it out in different ways um i'm of the conviction that the reformed have the most biblically informed approach that doesn't mean that uh i don't think that you know they're the, the things that other theologies have, have uh, proposed are completely worthless, but it, I do think that the Reformed faith is the most biblically faithful. Any thoughts on that? Um, anyway, we have gotten to that point where we should probably wrap things up. <laughs> you to, to the, the edge place. of the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, the plane's making a landing. Area. Are. That's right. I've heard that before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, how you speak to us and how you are at work uh, uh, in our lives in ways that uh, can challenge us intellectually. Uh, we've endeavored this this morning to uh, more fully understand the nature of our salvation and also. Uh, the ongoing need for us to grow in grace and what that means. Sometimes these matters are hard to hold together in our minds at the same time, but uh, we know that what's difficult for us is easy for you. There's nothing mysterious about this uh, to you. Uh, I think the main thing we want, Lord, is to live in in a way that pleases you and uh, it genuinely is biblical in nature. So help us to do that, Lord.